John chapter 8, verse 30 says, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall be free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this uh, opportunity again to come together and to open your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would um, press upon our minds the truth that you have laid uh, before us and that by uh, studying that we might be transformed and changed by this time together in your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And this portion of scripture that I just read, we are returning to for a second time. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I was last with you, we just started into the text. Uh, we didn't make it very far, uh, in part because it's a very powerful portion of Scripture uh, that brings uh, to the forefront the true nature of saving faith. And it's really an, imper- uh, an urgent and an important topic for us to cover and, and to understand biblically. Again, verse 30 says, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Verse 31, Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. And again, we didn't get much further than right there in, uh, in, uh, in our study together last time, because I said it really introduces the topic of who is a real disciple of Christ? Who is, a, who is a true follower of Christ? Who is a true believer? Because there are many people who profess faith in Christ. There are many people who declare themselves to be followers of Christ, many people who give witness to the fact that they are Christians, yet the truth biblically is not all faith is saving faith. Not all professions are genuine professions of faith. Not all belief is truly salvific. And last time I was with you, we spent the, nearly the entire time working through that very issue. I showed you in the context that as Jesus is teaching here in the, in the temple... Uh, During the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus just kept proclaiming the truth, but uh, the religious leaders of Israel had hardened their heart against the truth that he was uh, proclaiming. And they outright rejected him. They outright rejected the fact that he is the light of the world, uh, the promised Messiah, the Savior, as it says in John chapter 8, verse 12. And rather than believing the truth of uh, who Jesus actually is, God incarnate, uh, the Jewish religious leaders actually wanted to kill him. John, in his commentary, tells us that back in chapter 5, verse 18. He affirms it again in chapter 7. Jesus himself also affirms that again in chapter 7. In fact, the people of the city of Jerusalem knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Again, you read that in John chapter 7, verse 25. Their hatred of him was uh, so great, right? It was somewhat of an open secret, if you will. And through his teaching here in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus repeatedly warned the religious leaders uh, who thought they were on their way to heaven. The reality of the fact is that they were on their way to eternal hell. That they were really of this world, part of this evil, satanically inspired uh, system that is continually in opposition to God, continually in opposition to Christ. Part of this evil world system that is ruled by Satan himself. When reality is that Jesus is from heaven. He's completely opposite of them. He's from heaven. He speaks the word of truth from his father that the father has given to him, and they could not and would not believe, accept, or hear that truth. 
And Jesus reported, or repeatedly warned them, verse 24, I, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And I told you that was a compassionate statement for Christ. Jesus, out of his compassion, uh, repeats these devastating realities, this devastating truth of the necessity of faith in him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the, the only Son of the living God. You have to believe the truth about Jesus, who he is, in order for a man to be saved. And again, these words in verse 24 warn of the tragic consequences of disbelief. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And to die in your sins with your sin unforgiven is to face eternal conscious torment and a literal physical place of unending punishment. And yet repeatedly the text tells us they didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand the reality of who he was, even though the evidence of who he was was absolutely undeniable. Then he stops and proclaims the fact that he is their judge. He proclaims the fact that he's their judge. He proclaims the reality of his upcoming atoning death on the cross, the fact that he is in perfect union with the Father and in perfect obedience to him. And then we came to verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And I asked the question, so what do you make of verse 30? Are we to suddenly believe that all of a sudden a spirit of repentance has come upon the, uh, uh, the crowd and many of the religious leaders came to believe in him? Or as the NIV says, many put their faith in him? Back, John goes on, John chapter uh, uh, 8 here, verse uh, 31, John says, Therefore, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed. So again, I ask the question, do we have genuine saving faith here in this text? Are these people who have truly believed upon Jesus? And what I did with you is from the rest of the passage in the context, as it kind of expands out the larger context, I showed you the reality that not all faith is saving faith. Because Jesus, in the context, continues to describe these same people, these Jews who had believed, he described them as those who are still slaves of sin, verse 34. Those who, reality, did not love Jesus, verse 42. Those men who could not understand or hear what he was saying, verse 43. Those who had supposedly believed in him, Jesus said they were actually children of the devil. You see it repeated in verse, four, uh, verse 38, verse 41, verse 44. Jesus says, you are of your, devil, uh, of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father who is a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Then he went on to say they were in fact those who would not believe in him. They refused to believe. Verse 45 uh, through 47. Verse 45, he says, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you're not of God. Again, these people who supposedly have believed in Jesus have, in fact, verse 48 and verse 52, they've blasphemed him. They're the same ones, the very same ones, this group of people who want to kill him. Verse 37, verse 40, verse 59. So again, what do you make of verse 30? As he spoke these truths, many came to believe in him. Well, again, they said the truth is not all faith is saving faith. There is such a thing as unbelieving faith. There is such a thing as unsaved believers. And I showed you that the situation here in John 8 is not unique. It's not unique to the book of John. You see it earlier in the book of John, chapter 1. You see actual true faith as the apostles who followed Christ initially. But then immediately chapter 2, there's false faith. John chapter 2, right? Many believed in his name. But at the same time, John tells us that Jesus, on his part, was not believing their belief, right? He wasn't entrusting himself to them. 
He knew their hearts, John, 20, uh, John 2, 22, 23, 24 uh, of the second chapter. Because, again, in reality, there is a, such a thing as an artificial faith, a superficial faith, a false faith, a faith that does not save, really, does not save really an un- unbelieving belief. And, and the words and the warning are not repeated just through the book of John only. Uh, it, it's repeated several times uh, in the book of John, uh, my, by uh, matter of fact, John chapter 3, John chapter 6, so, fo- uh, so forth. But it's a reality that's often repeated throughout the entire New Testament. In fact, we looked at the issue over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these people go on here in, John, in uh, Matthew chapter 7. They give us a great list of uh, wonderful things they've done in the name of Jesus. Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus says, verse 23, And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, Jesus says, not everybody who claims association with me really has a proper association with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but... He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Their words were not the issue. Their profession of faith, in fact, was invalid. Jesus says words are are cheap. The issue really here is of uh, the test of their faith is their actions. It's their actions. Their refusal to do the will of the Father. Again, they were false professing believers in Christ, deceived. Unbelieving believers, again, with a faith that is not salvific, because they were living their lives in continual practice of lawlessness, claiming Christ, that yet the text says they were working hard at evil, they were breaking God's law. Iniquity and wickedness really ruled their lives. The practice of wickedness and iniquity, again, is completely incompatible with genuine saving faith in Christ. We not only spent some time in Matthew 7, we actually spent some time over in Matthew chapter 13, we looked at the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. Uh, the seed is sown in that parable. The seed is uh, cast. The seed is the gospel, obviously the proclamation of the, uh, of, of the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the sower. The sower is Christ. And, and there's nothing wrong with the seed. is the gospel proclamation. The problem is the soil, the reception of the truth, the composition of the soil, the condition of the soil. And, and in the context, the soil is the condition of the human heart. It's an illustration of the human heart. Because the reality is dirt is dirt. Right? It's not very complicated. Dirt is dirt. It doesn't really matter if it's hard dirt, soft dirt, shallow dirt, weedy dirt. The difference in the soils has to do with how the soil has been prepared, how the soil has been conditioned. Because a soil that is not properly conditioned, not properly prepared, will never bear crop. So in that Matthew 13 passage, the first soil you might remember was the seed that was sown beside the road. It was the hard heart, the unresponsive, unresponsive hearer hears the word, but it doesn't accept it, doesn't understand the gospel. Then on top of that, the text says the evil one comes away and snatches what has been sown in his heart. The second soil in that parable was the seed that was sown in the rocky places, the rocky heart or the shallow heart. It receives the word immediately and sprouts up with great joy. Boy, this person really wants to go to heaven. Right, amen? You want to go to heaven? This person really wants to skip the eternal punishment of hell. They sign up. They will accept Jesus, this soil. They'll accept Jesus. But they don't count the cost. They don't count the cost. They don't deal with the issue of sin in their own heart. 
The reception of the gospel is only temporary because there's been no true repentance, no true sorrow over sin. Therefore, no, no firm root is established. The text tells us that when, when affliction or persecution comes uh, in the world that arises because of the world, immediately this kind of person turns away, this person rejects the gospel. And the truth is they reject the gospel because they've never really been born again. They've never been regenerate. Third kind of soil in that parable was the, the weedy or the thorny soil. That was the strangled heart. That was the worldly heart. Uh, again, this is the man who, again, hears the word and receives it with great joy. He, he hears the gospel. He wants all the benefits of the gospel. But then the world starts crowding out his life. The worry of the world. The deceitfulness of riches. They choke out the word, and the word becomes unfruitful. And the spiritual life of this man is choked out. Because he's not genuinely saved. I'm telling you, this kind of person is difficult to pick out at first. Why is that? Well, because they come to church. Uh, They come to church. They identify themselves with God. They identify themselves with the people of God. They initially start to show growth on a spiritual level, but their lives never actually bear any spiritual fruit. Why? Because this kind of person is preoccupied with the pleasures of the world. Again, the world's money, the world's career, fame, fortune, the lust of the flesh. Uh, claiming they care about Christ, but actually they they care nothing about pursuit of Christ or the pursuit of holiness. Therefore, again, this person turns out to be a false professing believer. Again, it's not that this person was once saved but has lost his salvation, but this person, again, was never genuinely saved in the first place. Weedy hearts, they accept, they're willing to accept Jesus as Savior, but they won't let go of the world. That's why John wrote in 1 John 2, 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There was the fourth soil in that uh, parable. That was the soil that was responsive to the gospel, the good soil, the open heart, the man who hears the word, who understands and then indeed bears fruit. In the text it says some hundred, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. But the word does its work in that person's heart. It produces fruit. And more and more that person looks more and more like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more there's a manifestation of righteousness of, of God in, in, in their life and in their attitudes. Now you stop back, you stop for a moment and just step back and think about the parable uh, and think about the whole point of agriculture. Why does the sower go out to do what he does? Why does he cast seed? The whole purpose of agriculture is, is to produce a crop. It's not like i got anything else better to do today. I think I'll just go out into the dirt and just throw stuff and don't care. No, the, 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 the guy who's the farmer cares. He, the whole point of agriculture is to, is to produce a crop, produce fruit. Therefore, in that parable, the ultimate test of salvation is found in the production of fruit because listen it was jesus christ himself who said in matthew chapter 7 verse 17 even so every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit a good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor can a bad tree produce good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire so then you will know them by their fruits verse 21 of matthew 7 again Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So all of the first three soils had, uh, in the parable, had received or heard the word, but the soil by the roadside, the shallow soil, the weedy soil, they never produce fruit. The the, the, The proof of salvation is not just listening to the word of God, not just hearing the word of God, not just having a quick emotional 
response to the person of Christ, not just accepting Jesus, but the proof of salvation is fruit. Jesus, again, Matthew 7, verse 16, you shall know them by their fruit. Why? Because there is such a thing as false faith. There is such a thing as false faith, false profession. Uh, Genuine believers, on the other hand, they are always identifiable by their fruit. That's what sets them apart from the other dirt around them, if you will. And obviously some genuine believers are more fruitful than others. We got that, but they all produce fruit. All genuine believers are fruitful. That's what makes the soil good. That's what makes them stand out from the rocky, the thorny, the barren soil. A good soil produces fruit. The word is sown and it takes uh, place uh, in a person's life and actually does the work. We also briefly alluded to the parable of the wheat in Matthew uh, chapter 13, right? That uh, that point of the wheat and the tares uh, demonstrating the fact it's really sometimes difficult to distinguish the true from the false. A wheat obviously is good fruit. Tares are a noxious weed. Uh, when harvest time comes, we'll figure it all out. That's what he's saying, right? The, the wheat and tares are going to be separated at the harvest. God's going to bring forth judgment. The sons of the evil one, they're going to be gathered together and burned. That's the, the tares, if you will. But the righteous, the wheat, they're going to inhabit the kingdom of heaven. So again, part of the question is, or part of the issue is, how do you tell the difference? Again, the answer is fruit. Tares look very similar to wheat is what I understand by my way of reading uh, but tares can't produce wheat kernels. And you're not eating tares. You need the wheat. So in the spiritual realm, the sons of the evil one can uh, I- I- imitate the children of the kingdom of God to some extent, but they can't produce the fruit of righteousness. They can't produce true fruit of righteousness. Why? Because, again, a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. Wheat produces wheat. Children of the kingdom likewise produce heavenly fruit, a heavenly nature. And again, you'll know them by their fruit, right? You'll, there's a difference from them and the children of the evil one and what they can produce. So the reality of deception is out there. The reality of the fact that not all professions of faith are genuine saving faith is a reality. There is a counterfeit faith, a false faith. That's why Paul says you've got to do something. Put a mark there in your Bible because we're going to come back. I wanted you to see this. I debated this morning on whether or not to have you turn here. I'm going to have you turn here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I read somewhere that a prominent theologian who wrote a book said that Paul never questioned the salvation of any of his disciples Paul never told any of his disciples to question themselves to see if their profession of faith is genuine because everybody who says they belong to Jesus is part of Jesus. So says the quote-unquote theologian. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, let's just check it out. 2 Corinthians 13. Paul's talking to the uh, Corinthians, obviously, but he's also talking to us. Paul says, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Hmm. So maybe we should put down our theology book and read what the Bible says. 
Test yourself, see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fill the test. So what should we be looking for in our examination? What should people look for when they examine themselves? Well, let me tell you some things that don't matter one bit. Praying a prayer, walking an aisle, raising your hand, signing a pledge card, having an emotional experience, being baptized, attending church, leading an outwardly moral life, feeling conviction of sin, knowing certain facts about Jesus. None of these things are authentic marks of saving faith. Because nowhere in the scripture does it teach that a mere profession of faith or baptism or being part of the visible church or feeling conviction for sin or merely believing facts about the gospel saves anyone. Paul says, test yourself, make proof. Literally what that word test means, make proof. Put yourself to the test. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Long pause. Unless indeed you fail the test. Ah, how do you tell? There it is, right there. Christ is in you. That's a great test. That's a great truth of the gospel, the great test of the gospel. Paul in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Christ dwells in the heart of the redeemed. Intellectual assent to facts about Jesus is not saving faith. On the other hand... A transformed life is recognizable proof of salvation and true saving faith. I said it to you a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you noticed, but I repeat certain verses over and over again because I want you to know these verses, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Listen, the Jesus of the Bible actually not only saves people, he saves people in their sins and from their sins. He actually changes their life. He doesn't leave you in your, in your wretchedness and say, well, I'm just going to add Jesus to the, to the list of bad things that are happening to my life. Here's a little good icon on my shelf, and I'll rub him up every once in a while to get a bit of good luck. That's not what the Jesus Christ of the Bible does. The Jesus Christ of the Bible changes people's life. He saves them from their sins. Amen? That's the Bible, Jesus. There are a lot of false Jesuses out there that a lot of people believe in. This is the Jesus of the Bible, that Christ is in you. Christ dwells in the heart of the redeemed, a transformed life. If any man is in Christ and Christ is in any man, therefore he is a new creation. Old things past, behold, all things new have come. So what should we be looking for when we are examining ourselves by way of the scripture? Because that's what the scripture commands. How about we look for signs of life? How about we look for signs of life? Do you not recognize this about yourself that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So what are the signs of life of a true believer? Again, understanding that deception is out there, that it's real, that not all faith is saving faith, that there is such a thing as unbelieving belief. Well, again, intellectual intellectual assent isn't going to help you. Intellectual assent to certain facts concerning Jesus is not equivalent to life and saving faith because the demons have that kind of faith. James 2 and 19, you believe that God is one. It's in, the, it's in the margin, I guarantee you. You believe that God is one. Good for you. In fact, it does say you do well. 
Because the demons also believe and they shudder. The demons have a spiritual knowledge and understanding that far surpasses, I guarantee you, anybody in this room. Demons have a spiritual knowledge and understanding that far surpasses any human being. And they are absolutely convinced of the truth they know. And not only that, but they're actually deeply involved in religious activities all over the world. And they acknowledge the total superiority of the person of Jesus Christ. Mark 1 and 24, for example, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yet despite all of that knowledge, demons are eternally lost. Demons are eternally lost and they're absolutely terrified of God's judgment. You read that in Matthew 8, 29. Why? Because they know they've rebelled against the Most High God. They don't possess life. They don't possess Christ. They may have a deep understanding of theology, but they won't bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They won't bow to the sovereignty of God. They, for themselves, have chosen rebellion. They hate God. They love evil. That's demonic faith. But at least you've got to give it to the demons. They're at least smart enough to shake, smart enough to tremble at the reality of God is and who they are and their upcoming eternal condemnation, the demons believe and shudder. People can have a knowledge of spiritual things. Romans one twenty one. even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. People can believe the truth. John 2 and 23, right? Again, when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, uh, many uh, believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part wasn't entrusting himself to all men. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, we know that you're a man sent from God because no one can do these things unless God is with you. Good for you. People can have a knowledge of truth. People can actually even fear God's judgment. You read in the book of the Revelation, Revelation 16, 15. Behold, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? People can have the word of God opened up in front of them and they can hear what the word of God says and they can be convicted to the sense that they feel guilt. Acts, Acts chapter 24, verse 25. Paul confronts Felix because of his immoral relationship with Drusilla. Acts 24, verse 24 says, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ, and he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. When I find time, I'll summon you. Give you a footnote. He's not interested. And a return engagement. Doesn't want to hear the truth. When he heard about Christ, when he heard about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, none of those personal traits uh, that uh, Felix himself happened to possess, he became very frightened. But that's not good enough. People can have a desire to have eternal life. The rich ruler wanted to have eternal life. You see that in Matthew chapter 17, he didn't, or chapter 19. People can be outwardly religious. The Pharisees and the, the scribes, right? The scribes and Pharisees certainly were outwardly religious. People can even affirm the superiority of Christ. Because don't forget the fact that the same crowd that hailed him as the Messiah on Sunday of Passion Week, Matthew chapter 21, screamed for his blood on Friday, Matthew chapter 27. Yet the reality of the fact is all these people died in their sins. 
Why? Because it was a kind of a faith, it was a kind of a belief that's not salvific. And many people live under the illusion that they're saved when they're not. Again, Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. Anybody who meets the living Christ in repentance and faith, genuine faith in him, is always transformed and changed. Never never remain the same. Now go back. I'll say more on that here just in a second, but go back to John 8. And just look at it again. How, how do you know the difference between the true and the false? Well, again, John 8 and 30, you got, it says, he, he spoke these things, well, as they're in the temple, right? He spoke these things, and many came to believe in him. So there's some kind of assent to truth. I mean, if you remember back in chapter 6, there's a huge crowd of people following Jesus, right? People were fascinated by him. People were fascinated by the supernatural. He was doing signs. He was healing people. He was handing out free food, promising heaven, promising forgiveness of sin. I mean, who would want to sign up for that? More than likely, there's a large group listening to him there in the temple. Speaking of the benefits of following him, he's talking about uh, life and reality. And people, how they interpret these things. Well, who wouldn't want their best life now, right? right? People want a better life. People want stuff. Free food again. People are afraid of death. They want heaven. People want to belong to a group. There's that kind of a superficial belief, kind of an easy believism, if you will. There's a certain group of people in the, in the crowd that always comes to Jesus because they're always seeking some kind of personal fulfillment, personal things that they can get from him, some kind of gratification. That's an easy kind of belief. But you'll notice that when Jesus starts making difficult demands, hard demands upon people, when the world, the flesh, and the devil start pulling hard upon a man's fallen nature, many who are still in love with their own sin are unwilling to yield themselves to Christ in true repentance. Many are unwilling to yield themselves in true repentance and humble submission to Christ. I know I had you just turn back to John, but I have, now I'm going to have you turn over to Luke. Back to, to, to Luke, just chapter 14. Look at verse 25, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Again, in chapter 6, there was a great multitude of people who left Christ when he made hard demands upon them. And Luke 14 is another one of these scenarios. You have a large group of people who are following Christ, believing upon him to a certain extent until, a certain extent until he makes demands. Verse 25. Now, a great multitude were going along with him, and he turned aside to them, and he's going to give a gospel invitation, okay? That's what he's going to do. Here's the gospel according to Jesus. Listen carefully what he says, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Whoa. What kind of a gospel invitation is that? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yet even his own life, he can't be my disciples. That's pretty hardcore. That's probably not going to attract a whole lot of people with that kind of message. There's nothing in that message about your best life now. 
There's nothing in that message that makes anybody feel good or happy. One of your friends comes up to you later on in the afternoon and says, well, you know, tonight I'm going to go to the streets and I'm going to proclaim this very message. But you've got to hate your brother and mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters. You say, look, you, you can't do that. You go out with that kind of message, um, you're not only thinking that that person comes to you and says they're going to go out with that kind of message, you've thought they've lost their mind, you're going to say that you're not going to win any people like that. But you know what? It's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus did. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father or mother or wife and children or brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciples. Over in Matthew 10, you don't need to turn there, but there's a passage in Matthew 10, verse 34, that relates. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and his daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, if you really want to follow him, it might make your family relationships worse, not better. Jesus says if you want to follow him, there might be a division in your family, the likes of which you've never experienced before. There might be an an impassable gulf between you and the people in your family who will not give their lives to Christ. And that's not all. Look at verse 27, Luke 14. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, look, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, then you need to be willing to die. Because in Christ's day, the cross meant only one thing. It was an instrument of death. Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to have conflict with the world to the degree that it could cost you your very life, then you're not worthy of me. Death of self, the heart message of the gospel, the true essence of discipleship, if you will. Parallel passage over in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow after me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. If you want to have all your sins forgiven, if you want to have freedom from judgment, freedom from eternal punishment, if you want to be rescued from Satan's power, Uh, 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 and bondage, if you want to become a beloved child of God and experience the limitless joy of eternal heaven, then you're going to have to die. If you want to be a true disciple of Christ, a true follower, you're going to have to obey three commands. One, deny yourself. Two, take up your cross daily. And three, follow Christ. That's what the person of truth says. That's true truth. And these are the principles that Jesus taught repeatedly over and over again throughout throughout his ministry, right? in a variety of different settings. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. The word there, deny, means to have no acquaintance with, no connection with. Lose sight of oneself. Lose sight of one's own interest. Now, there's a false gospel that's very often preached, very often proclaimed in many churches today. It leads to false uh, believers, false faith. It tells people you can come to Jesus just as you are. You can come to Jesus as you are, and you can stay just as you are. You can come to Jesus and you can feel better about yourself. You can come to him and he's going to meet all of your needs, all of your desires, whatever they might be. Where the true gospel, again, says you need to abandon yourself. 
Needs to deny yourself, take up your cross, die to yourself, abandon everything and everyone, all relationships for the sake of Christ. It's a difficult message. That's why it's so much easier to accept a false message. That's why it's so much easier to accept a false gospel, a a false faith, an easy believism. Because when you ask people if they want to get out of hell and go to heaven, people are going to flock to that kind of a message. But if you start preaching true truth, if you start preaching the true gospel in the hard words of Jesus, which is a call for total surrender and absolute self-denial and a recognition that we're absolutely nothing worthy of uh, uh, absolutely nothing worthy of only eternal condemnation, called by the person of Christ to make him preeminent, even over all of our own relationships, our human relationships, to die to ourselves, to live daily for him, that message is far less popular. Therefore, since Jesus wasn't an easy believism preacher, he said, if you really want to come to me, if you really want to follow, then you need to count the cost. Verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish and all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. If you want to come to Christ, you want to be a genuine follower of Christ, then you're going to have to count the cost because there is a price to pay. The price is a willingness to hate your father, to hate your mother if necessary, to hate your own life, to take up your cross, to die daily, and then to come after Christ. The cost is no one or nothing in this world, no relationship or any possession can be held on too tightly. No one or nothing can be more dear to you than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're not willing to forfeit that for Christ. Verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else while there is still, uh, the other is still far away, send a delegation and ask of terms of peace, right? It's another call to count the cost. You either make peace with the enemy that you can't conquer, or you make sure you got the troops to win the battle, right? Don't get involved in this thing unless you're going to complete it to the end. Verse 33, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Now look, nobody gets saved by giving away their stuff. But a true follower of Christ is willing to do that very thing. That's the level of commitment that Christ is demanding for those who want to truly follow him. Deny yourself. Take take up your cross. Make him preeminent. Make him preeminent above all earthly relationships. Deny your own rights. Your own right even to life. If need be, give your life for the cause of Christ. Submit to him. Follow him in whatever he asks. Again, back up for a moment. Where's the context here, John, or, uh, Luke 14? Uh, there's a whole lot of people following Jesus. Man, this is a great day. There's a whole lot of people following him. And you know what? He doesn't make it exactly easy on them. And repeatedly, in all the passages that I've just read, uh, there's a repeated phrases. Uh, and he says, if anyone, listen, if anyone comes to me, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, right? Take up his cross and follow me. 
Being a true follower of Christ, a true disciple, being a Christian, a genuine Christian, having genuine saving faith means I mean, realize, uh, having genuine saving faith means you realize it's not about you and it's all about him. It's not about you and it's all about him. So Jesus says repeatedly, it's all about me. Sacrifice yourself, follow me, give up everything. That's the first point of understanding what genuine belief is all about. That's the first point of understanding what genuine belief is all about. How do you tell the genuine from the false? A genuine believer understands there's nothing or no one more precious than Jesus Christ. Right? A genuine believer understands there's nothing or no one more precious than Christ. No one more precious than him. And every person who is genuinely saved, who is a a genuine believer, who has believed in a salvific manner, says, I'm willing to give up everything I own. Everything I am. I'm willing to deny myself to offer up my life in terms of death and in terms of obedience while I have breath to Christ. He is everything. And also, genuine saving faith, as I said earlier, demonstrates itself in fruit. It demonstrates itself in a person's changed life. See, if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, you're different from who you used to be. And along with that comes an enduring love for Christ, a a devotion to Christ. A genuine saving faith recognizes, again, it's all about Christ, and a genuine person who has genuine saving faith is willing to obey Christ at all costs. Again, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 9, having been made perfect, Jesus, who he's talking about, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Boy, if you thought signing up for Jesus was some kind of cruise ship thing and obedience was optional, you've not signed up for the biblical Jesus. Genuine saving faith recognizes Christ, is willing to obey him at all costs. Genuine saving faith acknowledges the lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as... I'm sorry? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as... So you've read that passage of scripture, right? I didn't write it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, then you'll be saved. Genuine saving faith acknowledges the lordship of the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's who he is. Acts 2 and 36. Therefore, uh, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. A whole lot of guys out there. Try the best I can not to run off the table with this one. There's a whole lot of guys out there to say, well, you don't have to believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ to be saved. You can accept him as your savior. Fire insurance. I'll accept Jesus for fire insurance. Maybe somewhere down the road, I might actually obey him once. Well, go ahead. Sign up for that Jesus. But that's not the biblical Jesus. Nobody voted on it. It wasn't a raise of hands to see whether we agreed with the doctrine or not, right? Acts 2 and 36, Therefore let all the house of... Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He actually happens to be who he is. Thank you very much. He is both Lord and Christ. 
And listen, a person who has a genuine saving faith, a person who genuinely believes upon the biblical Christ, will yearn to obey him, will yearn to submit their life to him in full because he's the Lord. Now, obviously, we get it that our obedience is not perfect. We got that. We got this thing called indwelling sin. We talked about it in the evenings in Romans chapter 7 when we're going through that study. And while no one obeys uh, perfectly, right, there's always the desire to do the will. That's ever-present. Romans 7, 18, 19, 20, 21, etc., and so forth. And again, any kind of teaching that uh, says genuine faith does not produce a surrender of the will is really a corrupted message. It's a corrupted message of salvation. Paul, Romans 6 and 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were commanded. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's conversion. You were and you became you were disobedient, but you became obedient by having been freed from sin because you were, became a, uh, uh, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, right? The truth about who God is, who you are, the, the transformational change that God demands, that God provides to the person of Jesus Christ, and you were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, right? That's conversion. Having uh, been slaves of sin, freed now, obedient from the heart, uh, freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, transformational life. So again, the biblical concept of saving faith uh, uh, as inseparable from obedience is not uh, truth. Or I'll say it this way. The biblical concept of saving faith is that it is inseparable from obedience. You have to have obedience. In fact, in John 3 and 36, the word believes is treated as a, like it's a synonym with uh, obedience. John 3 and 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Again, it's very clear. Obedience. Acts 6, 7, the word kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Again, obedience is an inevitable manifestation of true saving faith. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here it is, chapter uh, Titus 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good thing. Paul says, look, you know, you got these fellows on Crete. I, I know they're, they're claiming to be followers of Christ, but in fact, they're unbelievers. They profess to know God, but their deeds deny them. The characteristic activities of their life as it's fleshed out is detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good thing. That's a worthless faith, faith, a false faith. Because genuine saving faith that produces a transformation of life always embodies righteous works because of the righteous one. Test yourself to see if Christ, the righteous one, is in you unless you fail the test. Disobedience proves disbelief obedience proves genuine faith don't have time to go into it but the hebrews chapter 11 you're familiar with that whole passage of scripture the great hall of faith over and over again you see the same story obedience and faith obedience and faith obedience and faith as inseparable realities hebrews 11 8 by faith abraham when he was called obeyed going out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance he went out not knowing where he's going and again, it's not just Abraham, but it's all those people, all the heroes of the faith listed there in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Faith, they show their faith by their obedience. And again, obedience to God is evidence that the heart has been truly transformed and changed. 
Again, words are cheap. But genuine saving faith, as, as one commentator says this, firm conviction and a personal surrender and conduct inspired by such surrender. What's, what's genuine saving faith? He says it's a firm conviction and it's a personal surrender and conduct inspired by such a surrender. Right? A sent effect effects about Jesus isn't going to save anybody. It's not saving faith. And again, nobody, nowhere in the scripture does it say that a mere profession of faith, baptism, being part of the church, uh, a walking aisle, feeling conviction of sin, saves anybody. The ultimate test is obedience, obedience to God. That's why Jesus Christ says in Luke 6, 44, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The ultimate test is obedience to God. The ultimate test is not only obedience to God, but then it's production of fruit on a spiritual level. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Genuine saving faith looks like something. Genuine saving faith, again, manifests itself in a change in a person's life. Genuine saving faith understands there's no one or no thing more precious than Christ. Genuine saving faith recognizes it's all about him. It's all about Christ. Genuine saving faith demonstrates itself in a willing obedience to follow him at all costs. Because, again, that person has been genuinely saved, is transformed from the inside out. No longer who they used to be. New creations in Christ. And listen, they, they're new creations in Christ because they've repented. They've repented and turned from their sin. Did you know? There's a whole lot of people out there teaching that you don't have to repent from your sin and you can still call yourself a Christian. I kid you not. However, Jesus happened to preach the foundational message of repentance. That was the foundational message of his ministry. That he said was the path to genuine saving faith. At the beginning of his public ministry... Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Christ in his public ministry says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, From this time on, Jesus began to say, to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the foundational message of salvation in the New Testament for genuine saving faith. Acts 2 and 36, Peter said to them, Repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember in the context, what are we going to do? He comes and tells them, look, you just crucified the Holy One of Israel. He asked for a murderer to be saved, and you crucified the Holy One. What are we going to do? Well, you know, just go on with your day. I'm sure it'll be okay. Live your best life now, and we'll just call it good. That's not what he says. He says you better recognize you're in a whole lot of trouble before Holy God. You need to repent. You need to turn from where you're at now to where you need to be. And any kind of message that eliminates repentance can't be called a proper gospel message. It can't possibly lead to genuine saving salvation because sinners can't come to genuine faith apart from a radical change of the heart, the mind, and the will. And that's what repentance does. Repentance uh, produces a complete turnaround, a wholehearted, a wholesale transformational change of the heart, the mind, and the will. Repentance involves a determined Determination to abandon self, to surrender one's will to Christ, as genuine repentance inevitably results in changed behavior. And listen, let me tell you, because some of the same guys who write these books that say you don't have to repent. Repent is a work. Repent is a work. You're adding works to the gospel. No, I'm not. I just read the Bible. You just need to read what the Bible says. Repentance is not a human work, my friends. Repentance is actually a gift to God. You say, where do you get that? Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Thanks for asking. God has granted to the Gentiles repentance. 
It's a gift of God. Repentance is a gift from God. 2 Timothy 2 and 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant to them repentance. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. What's repentance? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined repentance like this. Repentance means that you realize that you're guilty, a vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and the punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means you begin to realize this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and its outlook, as well as its practice, and you deny yourself, take up the cross, and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. You have nothing to do with who you used to be. You turn away from that completely and you wholesale, wholeheartedly, all in, follow Christ because Christ is everything. And of course, repentance is not just a one-time act. It it begins at salvation, at at conversion. True repentance takes place at conversion. But it begins a process, lifelong process. 1 John 1, 9. I know you know this verse, right? If we can... Confess our sins, right? Confess is a present active verb. It's present active. It's ongoing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Again, those people who still love their sin, those people who are unwilling to yield themselves to true repentance, to humbly submit themselves to Christ, they won't do that. Repentance is a gift of God. It's not a word. Just like genuine saving faith. Is a gift of God. Familiar passage, I know you know it. Ephesians 2 and 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith that it is not of yourselves. Oh, which, which, the grace or the faith? Doesn't matter. None of them are from yourselves. For by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. The process of grace, the process of faith, salvation, it's all a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, We were dead in our transgressions, but God made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. My goodness, how many things do you know that dead things can do? I'll wait, you can give me a list. Dead can't do anything. Dead in our trespasses and sins. No, I'm going to put my head, hand up and say, here I am. I'm going to believe. No, you can't do that. You're dead. Dead means dead. No life. No Christ. Apart from Christ. Even we're dead in our transgressions and sins. God made us alive by, uh, with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. I mean, we were spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, spiritually under condemnation, helpless, hopeless, until God intervened, until God came and quickened us. The authorized version says, And you hath he quickened who were dead. He made you alive spiritually. So repentance is granted by God as a gift of his grace, along with genuine saving faith as also a sovereignly granted gift of God. You might remember John 6 and 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me has drawn him. No one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. John 6, 44, John 6, 65. Philippians 1.29, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. Because again, genuine saving faith is sovereignly given. You don't work it up on your own. 
left to ourselves, none of us would ever believe. Romans 3 and 11, there's none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Romans 9, 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's God who grants repentance. It's God who draws the sinner to Christ. It's God who gives us the ability to believe. For without that divinely generated faith, no one can understand or approach the Savior. Because 1 Corinthians 2 and 14 says, The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Natural man can't understand anything on a spiritual level because he's dead in trespasses and sins. He needs to be quickened to the gift of God. And one last thing that marks genuine saving faith is it's humble. It's humble. Matthew 5 and 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. True saving faith begins with humility, brokenness, a sorrow over sin. It's going to lead to repentance. It's going to end in endurance, and it's going to end in obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say, unless you're converted and become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Proud aren't getting in. Genuine saving faith belongs to the humble. Those who are truly sorrowful over their sin, broken over their sin. They repent from that sin. They have humble faith in God, and God gives them that faith to believe then that person's life is changed and transformed. And then all of a sudden, that person who used to hate Christ now loves him. That person had nothing to do with God, now wants everything to do with God. He loves him, and that love for God grows. And that desire to obey, which was never there apart from Christ, is now there he wants to obey. And on top of that, the person who has genuine saving faith, Christ suddenly becomes precious to that person. 1 Peter 2 and 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, precious cornerstone. He who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those who believe. A person who has genuine saving faith, the person of Christ is precious to them. Genuine Somebody who has genuine saving faith doesn't debate, debate whether or not they should submit to Christ. They don't argue over whether Christ is Lord true believer longs to submit to Christ because he loves him. Because Christ has radically transformed and changed his life. Changed his eternal destiny. Go back very quickly to John and let me wrap this up. He spoke these things, John 8.30, he spoke these things, or as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Leon Morris, the commentator, says this, this section of discourse is addressed to those who believe, yet they don't believe. Clearly, they were inclined to think that Jesus, what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield to him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. Morris goes on and he says, this is a most dangerous spiritual state to recognize that truth is in Jesus 
and do nothing about it means that, in effect, one arranges himself with the enemies of the Lord. J.C. Ryle says something very similar. He says, this is the most dangerous spiritual condition any person can ever be, and when you're half, any person can ever be when you're halfway to Christ. Inclined to Jesus, inclined to the truth about Jesus, wanting what Jesus provides and what he offers, but not willing to give in to the full demands that he lays on the sinner of repentance and faith in him, declaration of uh, his lordship and turning from sin towards righteousness. Again, he goes on and says, this is the most dangerous position to be in because that's the path of apostasy. If you go down that path, you reject Christ. In the end, you can become apostate where it's impossible to be renewed again to repentance and you're guilty of trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant that is going to bring about the severest judgment in hell. Most dangerous place to be is halfway to Christ. Exposed to the truth, yet unwilling to go all the way. Exposed to the truth, yet unwilling to let go of the world. Reaching towards Christ, but not letting go of your grip of the pleasures and the comforts of this world. Therefore, as one commentator, he says, these believers, quote-unquote, right, these believers turn out to be nothing more than children of the devil. Again, slaves of sin, children of Satan, haters of the truth, blasphemers, murderers, as the rest of the chapter points out. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed, verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. The true mark of genuine saving faith is continual faith and obedience to the word, the word of God, the truth. If you abide in my word, present, you are present tense. Well, you know what? I don't think I got any further last time. I got more in my hand, but it's probably enough. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful again for just kind of a, another reminder and a warning. There is a false, there is a true. There are things that separate the false from the true. The true love you. To the true the person who has true saving faith, you are the most precious thing on the planet. And nothing or no one is more valuable. And because you have called us to life, because you have granted us repentance and genuine faith, we abide in your word. Persevere. We remain. We endure because you are our only help. You are our only hope. A true follower believes you and never turns away from you because you've been so kind to them in Christ. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the amazing grace that you shine upon us who have come to a genuine saving faith. May we all examine ourselves test to see if Christ is in us. If not, repent, flee to the Savior. If we find Christ in us, may we stop and bow and praise you and thank you.
for your grace and your mercy to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.